Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. This week I, um, I'm going to do something different. And uh, I want you to uh, go along with the flow of this. Um, Okay, I've got to find the beginning of my sermon. Be patient. There we go. Okay. See this book? This book is called The Rare Jewel. Jewels are good, like the rare precious metal, the rare jewel of Christian contentment. It's rare, it's precious, and what is it? Christian contentment. We're going to spend the next few weeks um, studying uh, what it is to be content, okay? Uh, Recently, I've been reading this book, but for years, this book sat next to me on the sofa. You know how you have books that you intend to read um, and books you don't intend to read? Some books sit in the middle. You sort of intend to read them, but you don't really want to read them, and so they're, they're in limbo. And this book sat next to me in limbo. You can see it's, it's small, you know, it's not a big book. You can see it's, it's not real long. You can see that the type is actually fairly large, and it just sat and sat and sat year after year. I knew I needed to read it. I knew it was a good author. I knew it was a good book. I knew it wasn't too long. I don't know if I said it, but I knew I needed to read it. And then finally, a few weeks ago, I decided to pick it up and start. But where was the book? It wasn't next to my seat on the sofa. I think it had probably been a couple years since I'd noticed it wasn't there on the seat on my so- next to my sofa anymore. So I asked Mary Lee, who's sitting right here, uh, I asked her if she'd seen it, and she said yes and brought it to me. So I opened it up, and it was marked and marked and marked. Now, I don't know how the rest of you feel about books that are marked up, but uh, I find it annoying because I mark books. And so if somebody's already marked it, what are you going to do? And uh, But... I found that the markings of my wife don't really irritate me because a lot of times she marks things that I wouldn't mark and I would mark things that she wouldn't mark. Um, But anyhow, it was marked up and of course that indicated to me that Mary Lee had read it and I assume the women's group did it or the, was it a women's group? Yeah. And so there my wife is taking a book that I've had intentions about for years, and, and as usual, Mary Lee gets the job done. So anyhow, I started reading the book, and immediately I knew why I had always known that I needed to read it. And the book is called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, and it's by Puritan pastor Jeremiah Burroughs, who lived from 1599 to 1641. He served as the pastor of a church up in Rotterdam in Holland, and then he served two congregations in London. 
You can see that he didn't live very long, 1599 to 1641, so he, he was only 42 or 41 years old when he died. Now, I mentioned the author in the time he lived and worked because one of the greatest gifts to the church in the last 70 years has been the gift of the republication of Puritan authors. Um, I have no idea what I would have been as a pastor if I had not started my work in the pastorate with Mary Lee by reading the autobiography of Richard Baxter and then his book, The Reformed Pastor. Honestly, I have no idea what uh, I would have unleashed on the world if I hadn't started by being anchored in those two little books. Baxter was a Puritan pastor. Um, I have no idea uh, what I would have said about the Ten Commandments if I hadn't read Thomas Watson's The Ten Commandments. I have no idea what I would have said or thought about repentance if I had not both read and preached my way through Thomas Watson's little book on repentance. And if you're interested in starting out on the Puritans, which is one of my reasons for preaching this series, I want you to read the Puritans. We have a ton of their books in our library, but most of you are probably using Kindle now, and you can get them. Back in about 1950, Martin Lloyd-Jones led a revival of the printing of Puritan books, and the publisher that's best known for this is uh, Banner of Truth, Banner of Truth Trust. Um, but there are a lot of publishers doing it now. Uh, one thing I will tell you about Banner of Truth is the only thing you can really trust Banner of Truth about is dead people. Don't ever look to Banner of Truth for any help on anything going on in the world today. They are the perfect museum. You go in to look at the past, but when it comes to the present, they're useless. And I say that so that you don't think that there are little pamphlets on this and that or that in books they do publish that you're going to get much help about things present. Uh, but I will say this, the things they publish about dead men and by dead men are unbelievably helpful today. And so, you know, every publisher, every person has their strengths and their weaknesses. Uh, I will tell you this, there are two-volume biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones by Ian Murray, and a number of Ian Murray's books, they're, they're all about the past. They're just perfect museum pieces. Uh, but museums are very helpful, and, and, and reading the biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones kept me going uh, in the most difficult years of, of our life together in the ministry. So Now... Think about these men, think about Watson, think about Richard Baxter, think about Jeremiah Burroughs, John Flavel, think about John Owen. Uh, if, you, if you ever want to shoot yourself, pick up a book by Owen and try to read it. <laughs> you know, I mean, that guy makes Jean-Paul Sartre look tame when it comes to difficulty of reading, but unbelievably helpful. Although typically, the, the things that have helped me most about reading books by Owen have been the introductions by J.I. Packer. For instance, his uh, introduction to John Owen's book on the atonement, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, is, is uh, a wonderful, wonderful introduction. Um, 
Now, Jeremiah burrows and the rare jewel of Christian contentment. Now, let me move on to another thing. And that is, there are two ways to preach. One way is to work your way through a passage, verse by verse, verse by verse by verse, and go through a book. And typically, that's what we do here at Trinity Reformed. And it's called expositionally, uh, expositional preaching. Uh, the man that preaches expositionally uh, claims for himself the title of it. He's an expositor. He exposes the meaning of the text of Scripture, but it has the connotation of verse by verse. Uh, Lectio continua. He, 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 he works his way through the verse, through the chapter, and through the book. Okay. Now, the conceit of expositors is that that's the right way to preach Scripture. I remember in a previous church one day, uh, a young man who, uh, uh, a young man came to me who was very confident that he, he knew most everything that was true and right. And he told me that my sermon the previous Sunday had not been biblical. And I asked why. Well, he objected to the fact that it was a sermon on a particular issue, a theme, and that it wasn't Lectio Continua, you know, that I wasn't going verse by verse. And I said to him, how do you think Jonathan Edwards preached? Do you think Jonathan Edwards did not preach biblically? And so if you look through church history, I mean, as a matter of fact, if you just look in the book of Acts at the sermons in Acts, they're not what we call expository sermons. They're sermons that open up the Messiah and the death and resurrection, the suffering of the servant. And they don't just stick to Isaiah 53 going through verse by verse, but they open up all of Scripture on the subject of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus' death for us, for the forgiveness of sins. And so we have two kinds of preaching. Mostly here we do go through chapters, verse by verse, and then through books, chapter by chapter. The other kind of preaching is thematic. Now, is thematic preaching not biblical? Well, no. What a thematic preacher does is he opens up a particular statement at a particular place in Scripture and then pours out all the rest of Scripture on that one place. So you take a little statement of Scripture and then you go all through the Bible and find every other place, okay, that... that that has something to do with that verse, and, and, and we're supposed to believe that's not biblical preaching. It's crazy. So don't get on your high horse about what is biblical preaching and what isn't, uh, because both of these methods of preaching can be abused. The person that goes through Scripture verse by verse can use that method of preaching as, uh, as a... Uh, um, as an excuse to be irrelevant, all right? And so many men that go verse by verse through Scripture never, ever apply Scripture to the sheep in their church because you just let Scripture speak for itself. And so you can be really uh, sort of 
uh, Purdue Engineerish. Okay, Rose Holman Engineerish about how you go through scripture and that's the right way to do it and you never apply it to your people, you never preach to the conscience, you actually never preach, you just teach, okay? And so verse by verse can be a cover for being irrelevant and acting as if it's a principle, okay? But on the other hand, (laughs) all of us have suffered through thematic sermons on one, supposedly on one little text of scripture and It has nothing to do with scripture. It's a poem and a story and an anecdote and prejudices and hobby horses. And it's what is, I don't know how to pronounce it, but I like the word melange. How how do you pronounce that? That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Okay, melange. It's like a potpourri. It's a conglomeration. It's a mixture. It's like... And... It's not bringing all of Scripture to bear on a particular point, okay? These sermons are going to be on one short statement of Scripture, pulling in other Scriptures, because that's what Jeremiah Burroughs is doing in this book. And so we want to hear what is the biblical statement that we will be studying for the next few Weeks And it's found in the book of Philippians, the fourth chapter, and it's the second half of verse 11. This is the word of God and is eternally true. The Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every one of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Burroughs begins his, uh, his exposition of this short statement with these words. He says this. He says, this text contains a very timely cordial to revive the drooping of the saints in these sad and sinking times. Isn't that priceless? He says, this text contains a very timely cordial to revive the drooping of the saints in these sad and sinking times. Do we agree? Yes, we do agree. This time of quarantine has been a sad and a sinking time, which has led to the drooping of the saints. I have drooped. You have drooped. Your lovely wife has drooped. Your children, wonderful though they are, they have drooped. Our president, uh, noticeably, has drooped. The whole world has drooped, and with the world, so the church has drooped. Honestly, I don't know a time when I've been more disappointed by the church than in the last three months. It's the perfect opportunity to proclaim the gospel. It's the perfect opportunity to demonstrate a godly contentment to demonstrate a godly submission to authority, respect for authority, humility, 
to proclaim God's judgment coming in the present malady. There's, an, there's almost an infinite number of things the church could have done to improve this time. Instead, the church has been known across the world for whining, for being smarty pants and saying that they know better than all the, the leaders. And this has been most noticeable among conservative churches and conservative reform churches. And I say, a pox upon them all. It, it is utterly disgusting to me. And that's drooping. The church has not met this quarantine with faith. The church has not seen this as a gift for the proclamation of the gospel. And so, yes, we understand that this is a drooping time. And what do we need in a sad and sinking time when we find ourselves drooping? Well, uh, Burroughs says, a very timely cordial. Now, what is a cordial? Well, a cordial is a cool, sweet drink. Often it's fruit mixed with water. Here in the U.S. it has the meaning of uh, sweet liqueur. But originally it was just a, a, a refreshing drink. Often, as I say, a mixture of, uh, of, of fruit and water and cool. Yesterday, uh, we used to have a little container of mint on the deck, and now it's been planted in one of our islands with the, the marsh grass and the peonies and the other crud, right? And, of course, mint being what mint is, it takes over everything. And so every time when I go around that island to cut the grass, there's this sweet, sweet smell of mint. And so you think about taking mint, crushing it, and putting it in iced tea. And what a wonderful cordial, right? Especially if you've been working in the hot sun and you're dehydrated and somebody brings you a drink with some mint in it and some tea or just water with mint in it, just water with lemon. Okay, that's how Jeremiah Burroughs begins the book by saying in a sad and difficult time, this verse is a cordial for us. A cool, sweet drink. And so as we droop under the coronavirus, we need a cordial. We need human contact. We need to touch and be touched. We need the laughter and the, the, the tigger bounciness of little children. We need the singing of the congregation. We need to pray and we need to eat the Lord's Supper together. We need all the things that God made for us which have been denied us by the quarantine. I was talking to Lucas the other day and I was in his office not observing social distancing, I don't think. And I said to Lucas that I didn't know what was wrong with me, but something was wrong. And uh, he said something like, he said, well, we need to live. You know, in other words, what he was saying is, we're not living, you know, we're not doing. And I really think that that's true. We need all the things that God made for us, which have been denied us by the quarantine. We have been being denied life for two months now. 
here in these sad and sinking times, and so we're drooping. And this verse, this statement of faith by the Apostle Paul is the perfect cordial for us at this time. It's a cool, sweet drink for us to quaff in our thirst and in our weariness. The Apostle Paul says, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Now, what leads up to this statement in Philippians is a discussion between the Apostle Paul and the Philippians about financial support. Now, it's nothing new that financial support is a sensitive issue when it comes to pastors. Um, This last week, uh, Jake got an email from a man who has been a faithful supporter of ours over in Scotland. And uh, Jake has been working to try to raise support for the new church plan and for Warhorn Media. And uh, this man wrote and encouraged Jake to trust the Lord about money and uh, talked about how pernicious, evil, wicked all the money grubbing is that exists, particularly in the evangelical conservative church world of the United States, right? And so he was admonishing Jake to be very careful how he and we raise money. Well, one of the things that's interesting is the fact that the Philippian church, if you know anything about the letters of Paul, the the letter to the Philippians is a very sweet letter. And one of the ways we know that the Apostle Paul looked with particular love at the Philippians is why? Well, that he allowed them to give him money. Because the Apostle Paul wouldn't take money from people who saw it as him manipulating them or him guilt-tripping them. or If we give you money, then you scratch our ears where we demand that you scratch them, which, of course, is the demand of every rich church. Tall steeple churches have the pastors they have because those are the men who are willing to take money to scratch rich ears, right? And so the Apostle Paul has been talking about his affection for the Philippians and how, uh, how loving they've been and how kind they've been to him by helping with his support, okay? And, and then he stops and he reminds them of his character, okay? In other words, he stops in the middle of discussing the support they've been giving him and he says to them, now listen, you don't own me. You know, you don't own me just because you've given me money. I've learned in whatever state I am in to be content. You know, we once had a converted Jew come up to our, a man that we loved, come up to our congregation in Wisconsin and preach a sermon. And he was a man who had made his living doing voiceover for commercials. He started out in radio uh, theater at WGN, Russ Reed. Uh, and he had memorized the book of Philemon. And he came up, and as a Jew, he recited the book of Philemon as a sermon. And you have never heard the book of Philemon until you've heard a Jew recite it. Because a Jew's going to put into it the sort of natural uh, pugnaciousness <laughs> of Jews, right? Where's Daniel? 
Would, would you cop to that? Yeah, 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 yeah. And so the Apostle Paul, if you have eyes to see it, actually is regularly, I think it's fair to say, something bordering on pugnacious. In other words, the Apostle Paul at times does things that no Midwesterner would ever do. You know, and this is one of those places, you know, he's talking about, you know, how sweet it is that they support him financially. And then he stops in the middle of it and he says, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. In other words, I don't need your money. It's almost as if he's saying, <laughs> you know, you should feel privileged that I allow you to give me money because I don't need it. Listen, this stuff is inspired by God. This is the word of God, and it's eternally true. And it's important to know that those we support in the Lord's work are not greedy. It's important to keep, and I know you want me to say a simple word, but I ain't going to say a simple word. I'm going to say it's important to keep the avaricious out of the ministry. And you go, what does avaricious mean? I say, look it up. Always keep note of the words that we've lost, that we don't use anymore, okay? It's important to keep avaricious men from church office. It's important to keep men who love sordid gain, men who love money, men who spend their lives scheming how to hold on to the money they have and to get more money. These are not the men who love God because the love of God and the love of money are incompatible. Jesus said it very clearly. He said, you love money, you love God. If you love money, the love of God is not in you. And so the Apostle Paul stops here to assure his dear brothers and sisters in Philippi that he lives in contentment no matter what that means. He does not live for money. And thus it is that having discussed their gift of money to him for his support, he stops and he says this, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Now I said that this is a little bit pugnacious. And honestly, I think that's stretching it. It's not pugnacious. Because really, to all the godly people in Philippi, it was a wonderfully sweet statement by the Apostle Paul. They didn't read it as him being ungrateful for their support. But the ones in that church who thought maybe they had a leg up on everybody else because they had given him money, I think maybe they received it as a little bit pugnacious that he was reminding them he didn't need their money. Now, I want us to turn first to the first statement. The preliminary statement, the statement by the Apostle Paul begins this way. It's, he says, I have learned. From this, we know that this contentment did not come naturally to the Apostle Paul. And this contentment does not come naturally to me. And it does not come naturally probably to you. There are some people who have a special gift of contentment. But most of us, we don't have that gift. The baby that's born 
is immediately discontent. That baby does not need to be taught discontentment. He wants his mother's milk, and he makes the loudest sound he can demanding it. Some babies are born with a personality that goes beyond that discontent at needing to be fed. And their personality increasingly shows up not as hungry and discontent until having been fed, but angry and malcontent no matter what. So even as a baby, yes, he's been fed. Yes, he's been burped. Yes, he's been changed. Yes, he's had his nap. No, he's not constipated. No, he's not sick. No, he's not actually teething. No, he's not cold. No, he's not hot. No, a dog did not just bark at him. Yes, he's a chronic malcontent. He has not learned ever to be content no matter what. And there are men who spend their lives this way. No matter what, they are discontent. They are malcontents. They're never satisfied. They're never content. And nobody ever had to teach them this. They came by it naturally. Discontent is not something we need to learn. Contentment is something we need to learn because it is unnatural to us. And so the Apostle Paul declares to the Philippians and to us, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. The Apostle Paul is declaring that he has found the key, he has solved the mystery of contentment. Contentment is not an easy thing. You don't just decide to be content, and from that point on, you're content. Contentment is difficult. It is a mystery. It is hard. And it has to be learned even by the Apostle Paul. And this should be a great encouragement to us. Naturally... We're not content, we're grasping, we're demanding, we're impossible to please, we're whining, we're complaining, we're greedy, we're lustful. As I said, we're avaricious, we're covetous, we're envious, we're greedy, we're cheap, and we're stingy. Naturally, our gods are our bellies. Naturally, we are proud and demanding and much like the crying infant who yells and screams to be fed. And so again, commitment or excuse me, contentment is difficult. It is a mystery, it is hard, and it has to be learned by the Apostle Paul. Now then, what is this contentment that the Apostle Paul has learned? This word content in the Greek, in the original Greek, okay, that's translated content in English, is a word that's used only here in the New Testament. It means uh, well, you know, every time I say literally or it means or something, obviously the word content is a good translation, but I want to show you what's behind that word because I think it helps us to understand that word. And it's a Greek word that means self-sufficient. It begins with the Greek letters that we get automatic, uh, autonomous, Auto it means sort of uh, self, okay? And so to be content is to be self-sufficient. 
you could translate it by saying something like, I have learned to be just as I am. Or I have learned to just be me. Okay, you know, you think of uh, Frank Sinatra. Uh, I've done it my way, <laughs> you know. And so this word is actually known because of the Stoics. Back in the heyday of the Stoic philosophers and livers, uh, 2,200 years ago, one writer who was contemporary of theirs summed up their philosophy this way, and it's, it's really quite helpful. He says about the Stoics that they affirmed that everything is fated. In other words, everything is predetermined and just a function of fate. And they used the following illustration. Quote, when a dog is tied to a cart, if it wants to follow, it is pulled and follows, making its spontaneous act coincide with necessity. But if it does not want to follow, it will be compelled in any case. And so it is with men too. Even if they don't want to, they will be compelled in any case to follow what is destined, what is predetermined, what fate has allotted to them. Now stop and think if that's your highest philosophy. Stop and think if that's your view of the world, that's your view of the universe, that's your view of God, and you want to live a life that's enlightened, but with that worldview. So you have that worldview, you know, the dog tied to a cart. Every man is a dog tied to carts. And you want to live in such a way that is fully integrated and enlightened and smart, given those realities, okay? And so you can imagine that before I started uh, trying to sum up what Stoicism and Stoics were, what the, the word I put down on paper preparing to preach was the word what? Well, it was the word smug. Okay? It's hard for a Stoic not to appear to others simply as someone who is smug. Someone who is proud in his self-sufficiency and self-satisfaction. And so is this really what the Apostle Paul is saying that he has learned? <laughs> is the Apostle Paul saying that he's learned to be smug and self-satisfied and complacent? And uh, Is that what the Apostle Paul is saying? And immediately I thought about the rich man, because isn't that the perfect description of smugness and self-satisfaction? The rich guy who decided he was going to build silos. This is from Luke 12, beginning with verse 16. Jesus told him a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. So think of Iowa Prairie, you know. And he began reasoning to himself. So he has this conversation inside, nobody hears it. He began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Superabundance of wealth, and I have no place to store it. And then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, now imagine a dude that's having this conversation silently. 
inside himself. And now we come to the point where he's going to say to his soul inside himself, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And then Jesus says, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? And then Jesus adds this explanation at the end of the story. He says, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Listen, no. The apostle man, Paul, is not saying here that he's learned to be smug or complacent or self-satisfied. The apostle Paul has not stored up treasure for himself in his silos and in his acreage. And in his RIRAs and 401ks and his car and his mowers and his house value. The Apostle Paul is not telling the Philippians and us today that he has learned from David Ramsey. Permit me to have a little bit of a rant, okay? I'll never forget reading... Uh, uh, oh, man... William Law, reading William Law's book called A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life, and actually also Soren Kierkegaard, but both of them making a point of how often we take Christianity and twist it in such a way that it gives to us the things we already wanted, but in a way that we can feel pious about them. Are you with me? Are you with me? And so the Bible says the man that doesn't provide for his own is worse than a pagan. And so you study David Ramsey real carefully because, after all, godliness is providing for others. And so you become an avaricious man, a greedy man, a man who has two months' salary in the rainy day fund and no debt and on and on and on and on, who has 2,000 acres, who, who has, you know, that's not godliness. You can argue it's smart. You can argue it's smarter than everybody else in your church and in the land that's built on debt. But don't ever mistake that for godliness. It's not godliness. And so the Apostle Paul is not to telling the Philippians and us today that he's learned from David Ramsey to have no debt, to have two months' salary saved up his rainy day fund. He is, he is not a stoic who has learned to like the direction the cart he is tied to is pulling him. He is not telling the Philippians that he has learned to go with the flow, putting on a show of a certain cheerfulness about that flow. And as I wrote this, I was, I was just thinking of all of the foolish, foolish and deceiving talk about death today. You know, everybody talks about death being natural and, you know, come sweet death, you know, and death is an enemy. And so, you know, you can look and listen to everybody talking about physician-assisted suicide and natural death and natural burial and all this stuff as just being modern stoicism where people say, you know what, I, I, I'm going to die. And I think I'll make it into a principle Death is natural. It's like, who are you fooling? Who are you fooling? The Apostle Paul is not here telling us 
telling the Philippians that he's learned to grin and bear it. He's learned to take a lemon and make lemonade. The Apostle Paul is not saying he's learned to maintain his magnificent eminence by presenting himself everywhere and always as above it all. Okay? Godliness is not stoicism. Godliness is not the application of reason to life in such a way as to live above it all. To live in complacency, in pride, or in smugness. Godliness is a contentment that does not lie about sin and suffering, about death, about oppression, and about wickedness in high places, and most of all, about my own sin. Especially my own sin. And the infinite ways that my sin dishonors God and harms my loved ones. The Christian who has learned to be content in everything sees all the misery and pain and suffering in everything, and yet he is content. Why content? Well, because the contented Christian trusts God in everything. 2 Corinthians 3.5, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. 1 Timothy 6, beginning with verse 6, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, and so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. And then Hebrews 13:5, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So let me say, uh, let me say something and then read a sentence from the book and then we'll be done. What I want to say is that during my lifetime, I have suffered personally under the militant claims of contentment of many lying Christians, okay? And these are Christians who always, always are glib and facile. And if you don't know what the words glib and facile mean, there's a reason you don't know, and it probably is that you are glib and facile. Glib and facile Christians are those Christians who trot out flowery phrases and never seem to have the milk of human compassion. They never seem to see the suffering. They never see the sin. And these, when they're men, and they're particularly gifted at doing this, they're hired as pastors. So that today, maybe the best pastor is the pastor who can most consistently never, 
ever see the sin and the suffering of his flock. And if he has perfected this ability, he's everybody's favorite pastor, (laughs) you know. But I have to say that even better than pastors are Christian women of a certain age who have smiles on their faces and and believe that the gospel is for Christians to have smiles on their faces and trot out inanities from from Scripture that are positive. You know, it's like, uh, nobody will know his name, but it's like the Norman Peelization Norman Vincent Peale or Robert Schuller or Tim Keller, you know, all these, all these wonderful insights and cheerful smiles and, and smugness. And this is not biblical Christianity. Nobody could ever predict that the best-known modern preacher today, Tim Keller, uh, would be a Christian based on anything that's in Scripture anywhere. If you compare the things that we think are perfect today in terms of writing books and preaching sermons and, and evangelistic uh, efforts to anything in Scripture, the immediate chasm is a chasm where Scripture always takes seriously the suffering and death and judgment of God and then solves it through the blood of God's Son. And how we have managed to turn Christian faith and witness into glib and facile, sweet little, like, carnations. I mean, car- sorry, somebody said recently they like carnations. I don't. Carnations don't have a reason to exist. They're not a rose. They're not a lily. They're not, they're not even clover. They're just these perfect little buttons of whiteness, you know. They don't even smell, you know. All right. Carnations are wonderful, right, love? <laughs> she doesn't like them either. Good. <laughs> she says you can make them any color. You can put water and food coloring. You know, I never knew that. Yeah, yeah that's a Christian today. You know, make them any color, you know. <laughs> you know, dip them in some food coloring. <laughs> he can be cheerful yellow or morbid black or, you know, oh my goodness. So listen, as we go into studying contentment, please do not oppress your household by being cheerful. Now, am I saying it's wrong to be cheerful? No, I'm not saying it's wrong to be cheerful, but everyone in your house should know that the reason that your cheerfulness is a gift from God and is holiness is that you mourn with those who mourn and you grieve with those who grieve and you take sin, especially your own, seriously. Now let me read the definition of Christian contentment here that he gives at the beginning of the book and we'll move on in coming weeks to study contentment. Burroughs says this, he says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. This is the word of the Lord uh, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.